Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Does house shopping ever really come to an end? Even if you're not looking to buy a house, don't those for sale signs still catch the corner of your eye as you drive past and you kind of look to see what house this is that's available? You have to at least look, don't you? You want to see what sort of house it is, what features it has, how big is the yard, how many cars could you fit in the garage, what color is it painted? After all, it could be your dream house. What if your dream house just happened to be down the block or across the alley from where you currently lived? Every morning when you sat down with your bowl of cereal, you would look out the window and there it would be so close and yet someone else lives there. Someone else is enjoying that yard or that dining room or that beautiful bay window. That would be difficult, wouldn't it? In 1 Kings 21, we find that King Ahab knew those feelings. Now, he already had the dream house. He had a summer palace in Jezreel. But as he looked out his window each day, his eyes were continually drawn back to a nearby vineyard, Naboth's vineyard. It had all the three marks of prime real estate, location, location, location. It was right there next to Ahab's palace. So convenient. It was the perfect spot for a vegetable garden, just like the ones in Egypt and Assyria. And Ahab was kind of all about turning Israel into another Egypt or Assyria, really anything other than what God wanted it to be. In his mind, he probably had that vineyard all laid out like he wanted. Oh, what he could do with that beautiful piece of property, with all his wealth and his army of royal landscapers. The melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic, he could already taste it. It's kind of a picture of the American life, isn't it? We have such prosperity here, yet the advertisers give us a constant parade of clothing and gadgets and cars and entertainment right there before our eyes or before our fingertips, promising that that this, this, will finally be the thing that makes us happy. All we need to do is click the mouse or swipe the card or tap the phone. And it always seems like our neighbors already have the very thing that we want. Far from being a sin in our culture, discontent is more like a virtue. It is simply assumed that you should always want more, buy more, do more. We're never happy But we're pursuing the heck out of it, aren't we? So is Ahab. He decides he's got to have that vineyard. And so he pops his head over the fence and he says to Naboth, Hey, let's make a deal. Verse 2. Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. Now, what could be more reasonable than that? It's right here by my house. I'll give you a better vineyard somewhere else for it. Or I'll pay you for it, whatever you want. That sounds fair. Verse 3, But Naboth said to Ahab, 
The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Now, I don't know how forceful Naboth was in his reply. Maybe he was outraged that Ahab would ask this. Maybe he was just stating the truth. See, God really did forbid the Israelites from permanently selling their land. It may be that faithful Naboth is politely saying to Ahab, you're the king of Israel. You should know better than to ask me for the land God has given my family. Numbers 36.7 says, The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another. For every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And that's what Naboth just said. Ahab should know this, shouldn't he? The king of God's people should be leading them in obedience to God's laws, not trying to break them for his own gain. He should be protecting his people's property, protecting their inheritance, not threatening it. But Ahab doesn't have much use for Yahweh or for Yahweh's law unless he can twist it to his own ends, as we'll see in a moment. So defeated, Ahab doesn't press the issue. He just goes home to sulk. Verse 4. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Kind of reminds me of what my kids do when they don't get what they want. Of course, I never do anything like that when I don't get what I want. right? And I'm sure none of you ever do that when you don't get your way. Okay, so maybe that's not accurate, but... I know this, I certainly wouldn't starve myself. I mean, when you get all vexed and sullen like Ahab, don't you want a big bowl of ice cream to sort of solve the problem? But in all seriousness, I want you to notice this. Ahab is discontent. He's discontent. He's not happy with the glorious summer palace. He's not happy with his own vineyards. He's not satisfied with all that God has given him. He reminds us of Adam and Eve in the garden. Ahab has been given all he needs, but Ahab wants what God said he cannot have, and he wants it bad. Today we're going to see how discontentment often leaves us open to temptation. Because when we're discontent, when we don't get what we want, we're often willing to do things that we know are wrong just in order to get whatever it is we think will make us happy. This happens with material possessions. It happens with relationships. It happens in the workplace. Where are you discontent in your life? What is the possession you've been obsessing over? What, who is the person you've been searching for or trying to manipulate? What is the elusive experience that will make your life worth living? Is not having that thing or person or experience causing you to be discontent? Discontentment is a hungry thing. Are you feeding it? If so, you need to know that the soil of discontent is fertile ground for the thorns and thistles of greed and jealousy and hatred and yes, even murder. The sin of discontent usually leads to more grievous sins. 
You see, Ahab has allowed his discontent to fester, and he gives in to apathy. He loses his appetite. He feels sorry for himself. And when we allow ourselves to dwell in the garden of discontent, we should expect that the serpent will come to tempt us. And in verse 5, Ahab's wife Jezebel slithers onto the scene. She gives the appearance of being concerned for her husband's well-being, but wicked ambition lurks behind that pretty face. And Ahab tells her the whole sob story, and when we have verse 7, And Jezebel his wife said to him, Do you now govern Israel? She's saying, Aren't you the king? Now, instead of appealing to Ahab's kingship as the reason he should obey God's law, as the reason he should protect his people's property, Jezebel points to his kingship as the reason he should disobey God's law. You're the king. Take what you will. See, the serpent knows how to twist the truth just enough to make it palatable for us. Did God really say? Surely this vineyard is not really off limits. Surely this fruit won't really bring death. You're the king. You can be like God. And Jezebel, the false savior, the antichrist, brings a false resurrection from a false death. She says, arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. I'll give you what God can't. I'm the one who can really satisfy you. This is parcel tongue. This is serpent speak. So Jezebel has a plan, which she outlines in verses 8 through 10. She will declare a fast, a corporate ceremony of mourning. She'll invite all the elders and the leaders and make them complicit in the conspiracy. What's the pretense for this fast? Well, possibly for the words of judgment that Ahab received in the previous chapter, in chapter 20, when he failed to obey the Lord and God promised to bring judgment on his house, that also left him sullen and vexed. Or it's possibly because Jezebel's gods have been getting trounced in the ring lately by the troublesome Elijah. Whatever it is, they have a pretense of devotion, of a pretense of humility, of seeking the Lord by declaring this fast. But you can see Jezebel doesn't really want to fast. Jezebel wants to feast. She wants to feast on the flesh of innocent Naboth and anyone who opposes her, I mean Ahab's, reign. So here's her plan. At this public fast, they will put Naboth at the head of the people in a place of honor. And he probably was a respectable and devout man. They put him at the head of this feast. But the elders will scrounge up two worthless men to act as false witnesses against him. Remember, in Israel, the truth must be established by two or three witnesses. So they'll find these worthless men, and these two men will bring a charge of blasphemy against Naboth. They'll accuse him of cursing God and the king, because even Jezebel knows that according to God's law, that charge demands the penalty of death by stoning. See, to Ahab and Jezebel, God's law is only useful when it can be manipulated 
to their purposes. And so Jezebel writes letters explaining this plot and sends them to the elders. And Ahab is just as guilty. He lets the letters go out sealed with his seal and in his name. And as we see in verses 11 through 13, the elders are more than happy to carry out the kangaroo trial just as Jezebel has planned. And everything goes off without a hitch. The fast is proclaimed. Naboth is seated at the head of the table. The worthless men accuse him. And the people take Naboth outside the city and they stone him to death. We find out in 2 Kings chapter 9 that they kill all of Naboth's sons at this time too. I mean, after all, we can't have any heirs to this vineyard hanging around. Look at this devious scene. All because of Ahab's discontent. Simply because he didn't get what he wanted. Discontentment turns to murder. But does our discontent ever turn to murder? We may not have plotted some elaborate conspiracy. We may not have gotten someone killed. But have we allowed discontent to bleed into murder? Jesus said, You have heard it said, Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. When we don't get what we want, how do we treat our Naboths? How do we treat those people we blame for our discontent? Those people who who seem to be standing in the way of us getting what we want. How do we treat the boss who isn't paying us what we think we deserve? How do we treat the friend or family member who isn't acting the way we think they should? How do we treat other church members who don't do things the way we think they should be done? How do we discipline the child who isn't satisfying our demands? Are we cold to them? Do we attack them? Do we begin to hate them? If we take Jesus' words seriously, the path from discontent to murder may actually be shorter and smoother than we think. The serpent wastes no time reaping the rewards of her scheme. Verse 15, As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. Well, isn't that convenient? And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Ahab's a type of Cain, isn't he? He murders his brother out of discontent, out of jealousy. This makes Naboth a type of Abel. He sought to honor the Lord, and in his innocence, he was slain. And Naboth's blood now cries out from the ground, just as Abel's did. And God hears the blood. Ahab also reminds us of an earlier king of Israel, King David. Just as David stood in his palace and gazed upon Bathsheba, so Ahab stood in his palace and gazed upon Naboth's vineyard. Just as David formed a plot to put Bathsheba's husband Uriah at the front of the battle that he might be killed, so Ahab puts Naboth at the front of the fast so that he might be killed. 
And we find that this is often a theme with Israel's kings. They are sons of Adam. They want what God has not given them, and they're willing to kill to get it. So if Ahab is like David, then that makes Elijah the Nathan figure in our story. God gives him the dangerous task of approaching the throne of Israel and uttering the words that echo throughout the halls. You are the man. You have slain the innocent lamb. Verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick your own blood. He doesn't mince words. Blood cries out for blood. And there's not a lot of love lost between Ahab and Elijah. When Elijah comes to him, look how Ahab greets him in verse 20. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? Why does he say it like that? Have you found me? Was he hiding? I mean, he's the king of Israel. It'd be hard to hide. Have you found me? Was he hiding from Elijah? Was he hiding from God? Of course he was. Maybe the people of the land have been fooled by this false fast in this kangaroo court, but Ahab knows what he's done. He's the guy over there in the corner cowering behind the fig leaf. In verses 21 through 24, Elijah delivers God's word of judgment, and the long and short of it is that Ahab's house has gone to the dogs. Literally, God says the dogs will lick up the blood of Ahab. He says they shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. And if you read on in the book of Kings, you'll see that this all comes to pass. Why does the Lord bring such harsh judgment on Ahab? The author reminds us in verse 25, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. What does it say? He sold himself. The king of Israel had sold his own soul into slavery, sold himself to Baal. He gave himself over to the practices of the pagans, the very people whom the Lord had defeated, specifically in order to give this kingdom to Israel. His wife offered him the forbidden fruit, and he took it and ate it gladly. And now he will be cast out from the garden and cursed forever. Well, Ahab deserves it, doesn't he? I mean, look at this terrible tale of greed and deceit and treachery. What charge shall we not bring against Ahab? It's hard to find a commandment that he hasn't broken. You shall have no other gods. You shall not bow down to idols. You shall not carry the, name, the Lord's name lightly. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not steal. You shall not murder. It's almost like he's systematically working his way through the list, isn't it? An innocent and God-fearing man now lies murdered with all his sons. 
simply because the vineyard that had been in his family for 700 years just happened to be next to the king's new palace. What would you do with Ahab? Destroy him. Cut off his sons. Put an end to his name. Blood for blood. Do to him what he has done to Naboth. Feed him to the dogs. But wait. Verse 27. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. It's not the first time in this chapter that Ahab has fasted and mourned, but before he fasted and mourned for his own wounded pride, and it was a false fast, and he used it to entrap Naboth. But now, now Ahab is fasting and mourning because he has been confronted with the horror of his own sin. And verse 28 surprises us. The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. But in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. The Lord accepts Ahab's repentance. He says it's sincere, and he therefore delays his judgment. And we'll see that that delay won't last forever. And we'll see that Ahab's son does plenty to incur his own destruction. But here, in this moment, the king of idolaters and thieves and murderers is granted mercy. He's granted mercy. The end. Are you satisfied by that ending? Doesn't it seem like Ahab got off way too easily? How would you feel about it if you were Naboth's wife? Maybe we should be relieved. Relieved for the sake of the idolatrous and covetous and murderous hearts that are inside each of us. Maybe we should be relieved to find out that even those who sold themselves body and soul to the serpent can still find mercy and grace in the eyes of a holy God if they will humble themselves and repent of their sin. What do we learn from foolish and wicked and now repentant Ahab? Don't feed whatever sort of discontent it is that you feel in your life. Don't leave the gates of your garden heart open enough for a serpent to slither through. Don't let pride and anger and envy fester because they can grow into hatred and murder. Repent. Confess. Seek reconciliation. And instead, cultivate contentment in the gifts that God has given One way is to give yourself wholeheartedly to the weekly confession of sin, the one we make together with one voice in this worship service. We do that week after week so that we might be shaped into a confessing people throughout the rest of the week too. We do it so that we can better give ourselves to the daily and humiliating work of saying, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, of confessing our sins first to God and And then to our family members and our friends, let God make us a confessing and forgiving people. We will be as stunned by God's mercy as Ahab surely was. 
Because God forgives. He truly forgives every one of us for everything we've ever done. If we simply humble ourselves and call on His name. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why does He give such grace? Why does God forgive discontent, disobedient, murderous sinners like you and me? He does it because there was another faithful Israelite who, like Naboth, proclaimed God's law. Who would not sell his kingly inheritance even when the serpent offered him all the vineyards in the world. There was another Naboth who innocently stood at the head of the people. And the elders and leaders conspired against him as well. They found worthless men to provide false testimony against him. He too was accused of blasphemy. And he too was taken outside the city and put to death. And his blood speaks just as the blood of Naboth did, but his blood speaks a better word. This Naboth is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the death of this innocent man not only cries out for justice, it cries out for mercy. And when we repent in the name of Jesus, it is His blood that we claim. Let His blood be on us and on our children. It is His blood that cleanses us. It is His blood that frees us from our slavery to sin. And this blood does more than simply delay the punishment we deserve. This blood paid the penalty for our sin. Because He died the death we deserve. He was the innocent lamb slain as our substitute. This blood does not merely postpone death. This blood brings eternal life. Jesus Christ, the new and better Naboth, has secured our inheritance with His blood. He is the inheritance. And we have a share in His eternal kingdom because we are united to Him in His death and resurrection. So why should we continue to let discontent reign in our hearts? Why do we care so much about getting our way, about getting what we want at any cost? when we've already been given more than we could ever hope for, after we've already been bought at the most precious price imaginable, a price we could never have paid even if we had all the riches in the kingdom. What's your discontentment today? What are you putting your hope in that is not God? Don't go down the path of Ahab. Don't feed your discontent. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, And all these things will be added unto you. In Christ, we already have the kingdom. We already have the true vineyard. In Christ, we already have His righteousness. The Scriptures say that Christ has filled our discontented hearts. He has filled them with joy and thanksgiving to God. So let our hearts and minds find true contentment in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, if you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. 
Forgive us, Father, for we have been discontent with the lives you have given us. And as a result, we have not loved you. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Forgive us, Father, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by his blood. Teach us not only to be content, but to find deep joy. To find deep joy in the eternal inheritance that you have given us in your Son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.